My name is Christopher Peter and welcome to the Christopher Peter Review, where you will experience original podcasts discussing salient current events with a focus on the facts, evidence, and available data of the topics and issues selected. Hope all is well. Let us start off this podcast episode with a discussion on metrics. There are a number of different metrics that can be used to evaluate a business. You could judge a company by the amount of revenue it generates during its recent fiscal year. Or you could judge a company by what percentage of sales they account for in their respective industry, better known as its market share. You can also judge a company by its market capitalization, or market cap. So which of these metrics is best to use? The economist in me really wants to answer with it depends. The political economist in me answers it depends on what question you wish to answer. Just like our economy, there are many metrics and to get a realistic view, you need to use a number of these metrics together. In this segment, I am going to determine whether it makes more sense to consider market capitalization as a true indicator of quality or if revenue and profitability is the way to go. The answer is not straightforward. One might reasonably believe that these two indicators might be correlated to some degree. During a recent conversation with a friend of mine, who is not really an investor. Not that being an investor really makes a difference in the philosophical discussion we were having. In this conversation, we were discussing the potential size of a company if it were a publicly traded company, comparing its revenue to the similar companies on the Fortune 500 lists. I mentioned that while the revenue may appear to be the same the value of these companies are much different. He adamantly disagreed, but I am not sure many people concern themselves with the market cap number unless they are an investor. The company that we were comparing may have a significant revenue figure, but it has extremely low profit margins, especially compared to its industry. Therefore, one can reasonably conclude investors would not find this company in its current form attractive. Many people do not know the market cap of the company they work for. Only concern themselves with the revenue total. I am not sure many people would factor in how market capitalization would impact whether they keep their job or find themselves on the layoff list. Most people know, if revenues or profitability drop, then they need to consider refreshing their resume and start being extra nice to their higher ranking colleagues. Market cap may get their boss's boss fired, not them. Back to the issue of whether these two metrics are correlated. The world's largest company by revenue and the world's largest company by market cap are not the same company. In fact, they are not even listed next to each other on either list. The world's largest company by market cap is Apple Inc., which is not in the top 5 globally in revenue. The world's largest company by revenue is Walmart Inc., which is not in the top 10 in global market cap. I think anyone could guess those two companies would be in the mix, since both are known large global corporations. For those in the audience who may not be familiar with the term market capitalization, the term reflects the total equity value for a company. The metric is calculated by taking the total number of outstanding shares of common stock available and multiplying that number by the current stock price at the moment of calculation. From an investor perspective, it gives the total size of a company by showing the total value of the shares of ownership. The value stockholders are dividing amongst the entire ownership group. On the other hand, Revenue is simply the summation of the total value of the products, services, and assets liquidated during that year. A number that will go up or down depending on the quality of offerings and company reputation or external factors like the economy growing or shrinking. From an economic perspective, revenue of a company is a point-in-time measure of performance of an economic entity. For a period of a year, this is the value of the goods, services, and liquidated assets achieved in that year. Compared to the same period of a similar company, you can determine how much more or less revenue was earned. But does revenue amounts really matter or fairly comparable? For instance, Walmart has a significantly higher revenue number than Apple, but I think we all can agree that the products Apple sells are generally superior to the product offerings you would find at Walmart. 
Not apples to apples. No pun intended. Ironically, you can buy apples at Walmart but not at Apple. Pun intended. Apple manufactures the end products it sells to consumers. Walmart does not. Some products may be part of its private label portfolio. But I think we generally view the products offered at Apple as the best quality amongst competitive offerings. While the products at Walmart are the same products as its competitors just at the best price. To be completely transparent, I do believe there are better products than what Apple markets. The only thing I own from Apple is some shares of its stock. In fairness, I own the same number of shares in Walmart as well. Just want to be honest as I am surrounded by Samsung products and snacks recently purchased from my local Walmart. But I do not have a negative view of Apple offerings, just prefer Windows and Android. Apple competes for consumers on quality of product, brand name, and innovation perception. Walmart competes on scale and price. Different types of products. Different consumer groups with some crossover. People who buy Apple products are generally looking for a product that is high quality, safe and secure, and has the innovative features expected on mainstream product offerings. While some other product offerings may be better elsewhere, Apple products are generally the easiest to use from a general user perspective and come with great support services. I believe their products are well produced. But they should be at their price points, which are generally worth it for what you get. On the other hand, Retailers generally make money on how efficiently they can deliver products from manufacturer to end users. The efficiency in supply chains, inventory management, and delivery systems are areas where they can create added value. Value that can be used on brand extensions or new services. Now, cost management is in the DNA of every business owner, business leader, and organization but retailers and distributors take it to another level. On the other hand, technology-focused companies tend to blend cost management with an added focus on attaining the highest price possible for the lowest cost. In retail, especially with household staples, there is not much room for price elevation. The market race is usually to the lowest price while still maintaining profitability. Not raising prices to bolster the bottom line. Consumers are sensitive to price increases with products they have to purchase daily or monthly. A price increase for a computer may not be as noticeable as long as the buyer feels like they got the best possible price at that moment for the bundle they are purchasing. Remember profits are calculated by the summation of revenue earned during a period of time minus the summation of cost or expenses generated during that same period. There are two different broad approaches in generating profits. First, you can increase profits by focusing efforts on reducing waste, eliminating excess expenses, and managing suppliers to ensure that the cost side is consistently below the revenue projections. Or you can focus your efforts on increasing revenues for the same number of products sold while maintaining the cost structure. Depending on the industry, your strategy may be differ. Investors love profitable companies. The greater the profit, the greater chances that investors will gain value in the form of stock price appreciation or maybe a dividend offered as an incentive. Going back to our original question of whether market cap is a better metric than revenue and profits, the measure of profitability can be impacted on factors outside of the organization's control. For instance, the increased cost and decreased availability of plastics has negatively impacted the profitability and revenue potential of many well-managed organizations. A layman might say well the supply chain should have done more to manage the situation. But we just experienced firsthand an environment with rampant changes that no one could have predicted or effectively mitigated without some form of government intervention or industry accommodation. If you are an investor that plugs in varying data points and running models to measure performance, then there are plenty of companies that might have been downgraded based on environmental factors outside of their control or reasonable predictability. Some of these factors are valid reasons to think twice about investing into a company facing challenging non-controllable environmental factors. 
maybe some of these are ones you try to adjust your model as the factors are what you would call an act of God moment that might not be representative in the future. So a company could improve their product or service quality, enhance delivery capabilities, and afford consumers greater value and still see their revenue and profits drop. A company that is struggling can sell a division or asset pool, execute a real estate asset conversion, or offer channel volume discounts and improve revenue numbers and profit margins in the period that is not sustainable yet still look appealing. Like that year where Sears appeared growing despite everyone knowing it was near bankruptcy. So maybe revenue and profit margins alone are not the best measure. But is market capitalization better? I think the market cap is an important number to consider. The size of the value of the ownership shares is a valid piece of information. So Apple has a market cap number exceeding 3 trillion. Remember that a company only attains money from shares sales during an initial public offering or the release of additional shares. I think it is safe to say that Apple in its current state will not go private anytime soon. They do not have $3 trillion on their books and I am not sure they will ever want to borrow that amount to buy out their investors. Of course, if someone wanted to purchase Apple, the price would well exceed the $3 trillion figure. While market capitalization does give great insight on the value of purchasing a company, if one could purchase every share at the current price, we all know companies sell for more than the price of their stock. Because we know that people typically do not sell something unless selling is a better option than holding the asset. If someone offered you the exact Kelly Blue Book price for your car right now, there is a good chance you will not sell your car. You might not even sell if they threw in an additional thousand bucks. The inconvenience of finding a replacement may not be worth selling now. Also, if a person is willing to offer the exact book value of an asset, they must value it higher, so you have the right to maximize your price because it is simply a cash transaction for the other party. Essentially, there is a value beyond the market cap figure that is the true value of a business. From an investor perspective, I believe that it is important to look at the market cap to get an idea of the scope and scale of a company. But, as always, I believe that there are multiple metrics to consider along with the market cap. For instance, Alibaba has a higher market cap than say Toyota. But I think based on the information available for both companies, Toyota is the more certain investment as Alibaba is going through restructuring it may unlock value in the future. But the environment it operates in also is less certain than Toyota. I always believe that technical analysis must be combined with additional data that sometimes may be hard to quantify. A market cap number may appear good or may seem bad, but is there information that gives you some indication that the future may be better than the present with some level of certainty? For example, this is an off-the-cuff example, Google has a high market cap, but some up and down performance in regard to stock prices but one might anticipate that it will have a better tomorrow than today based on the potential of artificial intelligence and the organization's aggressive approach to the technology. So you can reasonably feel like that market cap will more likely than not grow. The tech giant will have another revenue and profit-producing division under its already impressive umbrella. As with anything, I believe it is important to have a broad and comprehensive view of what is really happening with a company and what its environment looks like. Sometimes data points can get us myopic in seeing things in a manner that may be momentary. So in the end, I do think market cap does a better job of telling the scale of a company. We should be talking about market cap rather than saying this company has revenues of this amount. That is nice but what is their market cap? How does that revenue stream relate to their value? Now let us bring in the team for a group conversation on recent current events. In this segment, I want us to discuss the growing scandals surrounding the current president and former president. The two individuals, who are leading candidates for their respective political parties, continue to experience growing legal issues. For former President Donald Trump, his legal issues are more here and now. Trump faces another indictment for his alleged actions during the surrounding time of the Capitol riot. 
We must remember that indictments are not convictions and indictments only stem from grand juries tasked with determining if prosecutors have probable cause, after exclusively hearing from the prosecutors. On the other side of the aisle, we are seeing more connections between Joe Biden and the shady dealings of his son Hunter, who is being investigated over a slew of potential crimes. There are some who believe he leveraged his father, who was the vice president at the time, in his business dealings or to gain positions that he was not qualified for. How should the public view these two situations? Are they equally bad? We have to consider the situation and the surrounding actions to gain a clear perspective of what is really happening here. The media wants us to believe that Trump's legal woes are a direct result of the greatest threat to our democracy. And that Joe Biden is not responsible for the actions of his son, despite the growing evidence connecting the two. In the case of former President Donald Trump, he is being indicted on charges related to mishandling documents and actions taken following his election loss. The trials will be the clear indicator of whether there are real crimes being committed here. But the act of elevating crimes beyond what normally are misdemeanors is politically motivated. And in the grand schemes of things, Trump's actions during his election loss are appalling but do not rise to the level of criminality when you consider precedent. Yes there are precedents. Legal precedence requires the government to act consistent in its approach in enforcing laws, without shifting due to the notoriety or political sentiment of the bosses of those law enforcement agencies. This is a check on the power of government. The justice system is supposed to operate blind to the person or persons being charged and adhere to a consistent process. That does not appear to be the case with Trump. Joe Biden promised to do everything he can to stop Trump from running. Also, the Department of Justice is pursuing charges in areas where it did not pursue charges from the same offense or worse offenses. For instance, the Department of Justice did not pursue charges when there was proven fabricated evidence to try to overturn the 2016 election. But inappropriate words are being charged. Not downplaying the fact that it was inappropriate. But we must have perspective. This was not an unprecedented event, as there were the same, if not worse, actions taken four years prior. The connections between Joe Biden and the actions of Hunter Biden are growing. And, if true, are much worse than anything Trump is being accused of. The potential for a sitting vice president to allow his son to leverage his position of power for business dealings is highly concerning. Especially since that son is living in the White House and those nations include one that we are bankrolling their war effort. The media is doing all it can to use the Trump issues to cover for the controversies of the sitting president. Both cases are troubling. But one being covered up is a bit more. We are going to discuss the media a bit later. I agree the media is a problem in the extent of getting a realistic view of anything in society. The growing indictments provide talking points not only for Biden and anti-Trump Democrats, but for the other candidates running against Trump for the nomination. Also, it provides fuel to rally the Trump base, which may help Trump in the primary and harm Republicans in the general election, which is something Democrats would love to see. We have seen them recently attempt to pick their opponents by interfering in primaries before. Yet, they want us to believe they are the protectors of democracy. How can the field use these indictments to narrow the gap and who can best benefit, if Republican voters show concern, which they currently are not? The person who probably is attacking Trump the loudest is probably the least likely person to gain ground from this line of messaging. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is laying on the rhetoric pretty thick. While others are condemning Trump's actions in a more muted or balanced manner. First, they need to consider the fact that is staring them right in the face. The Trump base is loyal and large. They need to show differences with Trump while connecting with a group of people who do not feel like their voices were heard in 2020. 
Christie is taking the usual in-your-face New Jersey approach that New Jerseyans love, but it may not encourage Trump loyalists from switching sides. There is a need to also consider the fact that if Democrats can use the powers of law enforcement to advance political agendas, then they can do it to any Republican they choose to. While Trump fuels a good amount of the dislike for him, the Democrat tactics and how they frame Republicans in negative light also plays a part with the help of their media sympathizers. The only person who I feel has a reasonable chance to win the nomination is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who the media and Democrats are going to great lengths to attack as well. They are distorting education policies to use anger and hate for political gains. So we cannot just look at these indictments and feel like they are the legitimate work of a prestigious law enforcement agency. The agency has lost its luster lately. And one must question why these indictments seem to come shortly after there is any bad news about the Hunter Biden cases. Not a coincidence. We know that Democrats do whatever it takes to gain power. The issues are what they do when they have power and why people fall for what are obvious fabrications and deflections. Republicans are the party of principles, values, and patriotism. But can they continue the moral compass if they nominate a person with a great deal of baggage? While we may agree to some degree that these are politically motivated charges, there still are real words and behaviors from the former president that disconnect him with the traditional values Republicans prefer in their candidates. Donald Trump is running for president, not Pope. Republicans usually want a person free of moral flaws or deficiencies. But the reality of life is that no American is perfect. We all have moral lapses at times. Some have major lapses that would disqualify them from office. Others have minor ones that are no real big deal. Many of the complaints made about Trump and his temperament are the same behaviors we see from Biden, but the media refuses to acknowledge. Trump is reportedly a hard person to work for. So is Biden apparently as he frequently yells and reportedly uses profanity towards staff. In politics, the reality for voters is that the standard we measure our candidates against is not perfection, but comparison to the alternative. From a policy perspective, Trump does have more proven success at handling the big things like our economy, our foreign policy and immigration. All areas where Biden struggles mightily. Trump is not running against Jesus Christ or Mother Teresa. If he wins the nomination, he will be competing against Joe Biden. The false Catholic, if he wins. Which seems like the most likely outcome. But can Republicans decide that it is time for a new candidate that can deliver the same policy success and that the nation can rally around? Whether that is someone like DeSantis or Christie. We get it. We are all from New Jersey. But Chris Christie is too far down in the polls. Governor DeSantis is kind of stalled at this point. A problem more reflective of the fact that Trump is constantly featured on the talk media. Every night Trump enjoys free promotions where networks like CNN and MSNBC spew their hate for the former president. Yet, never cover real current events like the war in Ukraine, where cluster munitions are reaping havoc. Or the rising cost of energy with the strategic reserve depleted. I do think Republicans have to consider personality flaws and how consistent candidates are with the rhetoric they sell to the public. But I think all voters should equally consider the behaviors of all candidates in a consistent and equal manner. Democrats do a great job of deflecting and projecting, trying to point out inconsistencies. While they stand for nothing but keeping criminals out of jail and raising the cost of living, Republicans tend to focus mostly on the issues and policies that need to be changed. Democrats focus on the person and whether they are likable enough for office. In the end, we are not trying to have a meal with the person. We want them to perform well at the most difficult job in the world. Be good at their job. Be a good person. But be good at your job first. 
Politics is a performance business. The results are what really matters. Not the manicured branding of the candidates. Much of what we think of political candidates are what the political marketing teams of their opponents or their teams put forth. Many people hold strong feelings about the candidates yet do not consistently look beyond the narratives. Marketing is important but it often paints pictures that are more beneficial to the payer of the promotion than the truth. Okay we will reconvene later to discuss the media. News media or maybe better called talk media. Now, let us move on to our next subject. Recently, a social media influencer caused a great level of chaos in New York City with a promotion that went haywire. In response, the city charged the social media influencer with inciting a riot and New York City Mayor Eric Adams denounced the practice of normalizing their values from social media. I agree with the position that people should not get their values, principles, and beliefs from what they see on social media. First, New York City has been through a great deal of strife lately. America's largest city was the hub of the pandemic. Then it was a hub of increased violence following the pandemic. Also, the city is dealing with the side effects of failing immigration policy at the federal level. Challenges that are pushing hundreds of thousands away from the Big Apple. These big notable events force society or communities to address issues and attitudes that prove more harmful if not addressed or at the very least debated. The events that took place in our largest and most important city showed the downside of the virality of social media, where angry mobs threw objects and food at cops. Not in response to police-related activity but a social media personality seeking personal fame recklessly. Social media can be very helpful to our society, economy, and quality of life. But it also can be harmful especially with people who lack a foundation of proper values, critical thought, and principles. If we are truly honest with ourselves, we must acknowledge that our society goes to a great length to prevent these proper values from being developed. Many people on the left of center spent decades attacking the traditional channels of value and community development. The progressives are staunchly opposed to religion and religious beliefs. Liberals have spent a great deal of time advancing public policy that has changed the family structure for the worst. And our public education does very little to establish fundamental values. So where do these politicians feel that these lost individuals will get their values from? The government? The source behind much of the ineffective and controversial public policy that many oppose. Not really an appropriate source to develop values. Especially in a free nation. Even if local policymakers have a mea culpa and realize that family should be the source of our value development. If these individuals had a stable, loving, and functional family, they might not be looking externally for guidance or direction in life. So much harm has been done to the idea of family and too many youths come out of chaotic home environments. A helpful start is identifying what values are important in our society. What values will help keep people from turning to a life of crime? Give people the best chance of avoiding poverty. Build community and foster respect for others' well-being and individual rights. Values that help advance our national interests, expand the boundaries of human achievement, and build upon lessons from our past and present. I hear people from both conservative and progressive backgrounds say they just want their children to be good people. There are many similarities for what a good person is. But also some areas of difference based on their underlying political beliefs. I think we all want people to be kind to each other and show respect and concern for the plight of those around us. We all want people to be law-abiding and not infringe on the rights and well-being of those around them. Most of us want people to be hard-working, earn what they keep, and personally responsible. I think there are different but same views on generosity. There are many liberals who chide conservatives based on their misperceptions of generosity. I know many people who are conservative who will donate to a variety of causes but not make a public spectacle of it. I know liberals who will spend time doing good deeds but want it to be known that it was them doing good acts. In the end, both are doing good.
but some want more affirmation while others do it because it is the right thing to do. Values are important in any society and how consistent we are with our expectations for those values is important if we want to see those values really be displayed in a meaningful way. Far too often we make excuses for bad behavior or try to normalize it or shift the scope. For instance, the rise in crime is always excused as being racially biased but the facts are that crimes are being committed. There is this false dogma that every demographic makes the same exact choices, behaves the exact same way, and it is just society punishing one over the other. There are some disparities in enforcement of the same crime, but not enough to say that there is a meaningful impact on statistics to justify implementing quotas on enforcement of laws. The reality is that everyone is different and experiences and education and values determine how people respond to adverse situations or perceived opportunities. There are many people who will not steal regardless of how impoverished they personally are. Others will steal simply for misguided personal excitement. Some will choose violence because they believe it is the norm. Others will avoid it and find more productive ways to address issues. Not because of demographics, but because of their value systems. When we see these tragic events, we are always quick to blame social media, inanimate objects, and everything but the people committing these crimes. We have grown skittish about holding people accountable for their decisions, attitudes, and behaviors. But we also need to consider how we assist this continued moral decline when we reject values. Some excuse bad behavior to the point where we really do not know which side some of these politicians are on the issue of crime. Are they more sympathetic with the criminals doing the immoral behaviors or do they really care about the victims who have this burden thrust upon them? While we want justice systems to be fair and equitable, we need to be consistent with our values and hold people accountable to being a positive contributor to society, not a problem. That requires values and accountability to those values. I hear the quote that perfection cannot be the enemy of the really good. But really good cannot be the target. One quote I heard when I was younger was that we aim for the stars because even if we miss you still can reach the moon. We should want people to be the best version of themselves each moment of every day, understanding that the pursuit of perfection may keep them from exemplifying the worst levels of immoral behaviors. Values should matter in our society and communities. We should want good, kind, hard-working, and community-oriented people around us. That is not radical. It is reasonable. Now let us bring the team back in for another discussion. Americans continue to not trust the news media for good reasons. The news media continues to show a great level of bias in coverage. They advance the agendas and talking points of the politicians they support. I always feel people should expose themselves to a variety of news sources to experience the sentiments and opinions of different ideologies and demographic groups. You do not have to agree with their views. But it is important to understand why they think the way they do. But how much can we trust the content that we see on television? How much of what we read can we trust if the journalists are quick to set aside their civic duty or journalistic integrity in favor of their preferred political candidates? I do think media bias is a major problem in our political discourse in America. For instance, the source of news probably influenced how the public views the pandemic response, the immigration crisis, and the economic condition of our nation. Fox News viewers may perceive us to be on the brink of the next Great Depression where CNN viewers think we are at the brink of the next period of prosperity. In reality, we are stuck in stagnation and are hoping to avoid a recession. But the American business community, entrepreneurs and consumers are keeping the economy afloat in the midst of poor public policy. My pet peeves with the talk media is that it obsesses over things that do not matter at that moment for the sake of political gain. Also, the journalists do not offer any critical thought challenging the sources of the material they give platforms to. And this is an issue on both sides. 
Never any pushback if the message is coming from a political angle they generally support. To be fair, Fox News does push back. But it could do more. The liberal talk media gaslights every story with a focus on being the first to say something rather than being the source that says the right thing. The factually correct thing. The thing supported by evidence, facts, and data. The news content from our national talk media is no longer even entertaining. There is a great level of personal anger for no good reason. Seems like these supposed objective journalists struggle to reason when the facts discredit a position that they worked so hard to advance. The media's role in society is to educate the public about the ongoings of those in power. To bring light to the decisions and actions done in the dark that impact the voters, the workers, the entrepreneurs, and all the people that make America function. They are supposed to hold power brokers accountable in an objective manner. The media was caught red-handed in 2016 selling the public a narrative not supported by facts or evidence. News media elevated data that advanced narratives they supported and ignored data that countered the preferred narrative. Data that turned out to be true. Instead of the news journalists and editorial boards working to restore credibility and being more comprehensive and critical in their coverage, they simply double down on the same path and also try to help censor countering data. The talk media is becoming nothing more than a marketing arm of the subjects they cover. Content may be biased, but can still be useful if it contains the complete set of available facts. We may disagree on the conclusions drawn. But if the writer still included a comprehensive overlay of the facts, data, and evidence, then the piece can still be useful. I am not a fan of news broadcasts that just release content that clearly has not been vetted. By vetting, I mean do the basic follow-up to ensure that the claims made in the piece are reasonable at least make the source account for obvious holes in the content. Also, social media is not a valid source of evidence, when you are just listing tweets, likes, or shares. There are many people lacking critical thought who are mindless like things or just go with the flow. We also know that content is managed by these companies. That is an interesting point. Going all the way back to 2012, news media coverage of the presidential election used Twitter reactions as a sign of whether the public supported a candidate's responses or proposals. Many news write-ups featured Twitter data. While the accusations of manipulation did not exist that far back, it is reasonable to believe that this was not something invented recently. Even so, the reliability of social media was never there. Why trust what could turn out to be content from fake accounts? The issue with the quality of content is that some articles are just reinforcements of position without an outlay of evidence to support that position. Or what just amounts to an attack on a position using semantics and hysteria. A relevant counter to a position is a factual argument against that position. Not just stating that the argument makes you uncomfortable or feel bad because it disagrees with your position. I think we should consider doing a segment on how to reason and form rational arguments. That may help content creators and pundits who contribute to the mess we are in today. There was a time when biased content could still be useful because the consumer of that content could understand the position of the writer and focus on the facts and evidence. This is where the exposure to multiple sources helps. Because you could see what facts, evidence, and data are common across all positions and what sets are exclusive to each side. Then you could weigh the differences or draw your own conclusions. Quality articles in my personal opinion are ones where the writer acknowledges the different views and either lets the audience decide what is right or argues for one side, but acknowledges there are other views. In our modern-day society, people do not want to acknowledge opposing views and want to censor messengers of those views. This weakens your argument if you are not capable of acknowledging differences and offering why your position still is valid despite counter-evidence. That is important.
Critical thinking is important. People in the news media are not just out there to give opinions. That is not what journalism is. Otherwise they are just storytellers. Maybe they are. Maybe they are just storytellers. The news media does a disservice when it fails to educate the public and give people the tools and information needed to make an informed decision. Also, the media should scrutinize the preferred messaging from those in power regardless of what party or ideology. The blind advancement of positions or information is irresponsible. And inconsistent quality and coverage is not helpful. It is shameful when you see journalists help the preferred candidates in a manner that resembles endorsement. Where is their sense of professional responsibility or civic duty? Thank you Jennifer and Javi. Finally, let us close on my favorite area to discuss, the world of sports and entertainment. A much lighter subject area. Generational athletes are not grown on trees. Each year, there are only a handful of prospects deemed franchise changers entering the respective drafts of each professional sports league. Few of these players actually will live up to the lofty expectations. We see that each year in football. There are many NFL teams who struggle each year to find a quarterback that they can build a successful team around. For instance, the Washington Commanders have not had a quarterback they felt was a franchise guy since Kirk Cousins, who they did not deem worthy of a franchise quarterback-type contract. An obvious mistake is they have struggled to find consistency over the last decade, despite winning the division a couple times. Sometimes you may acquire or draft a generational talent but may end up in the same situation that Washington experienced with Kirk Cousins, where the value they place on the player does not meet the hefty salary or contract demands of that talent. In the case of the Commanders, then the Redskins, they decided that it made more sense to them to hold onto the business line and not budge, eventually watching Cousins earn a fully guaranteed contract with a conference foe. From a dollars and cents perspective, they may believe that they rather struggle to find the next person who can be the cornerstone for their franchise at the most important position in sports than overpay for the services of a player, who may not live up to the expectations of winning a Super Bowl. Kirk Cousins has not won a Super Bowl, but has made the Minnesota Vikings a consistent contender in the NFC North. Some say he is allergic to night games, but the stability of a consistent performer at the most crucial position affords teams the ability to plan there is still plenty of time for Cousins to answer the critics. But what is already proven is that he is a franchise quarterback. Now, one can also argue that maybe the Washington Commanders should have considered trading Kirk Cousins if they did not intend to offer him a contract worthy of a franchise quarterback. Many teams in baseball understand that they have a talent whose value exceeds their ability to compensate past the six years of team control. Therefore, those teams decide to trade their stars in order to maximize their position. In exchange for that loss, they will seek to compete with a plethora of prospects that may collectively provide similar value or reset the clock before being traded themselves. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim made the controversial decision to hold on to their generational once-in-a-lifetime talent in Shohei Otani. Many assume they will have great difficulty convincing the pitching and hitting star to re-sign with a franchise that has not come close to the playoffs during his tenure with the team. In all fairness, at the time of the trade deadline, they were as close as they ever were. They made reasonable trades to bolster their effort, but have experienced a great deal of losing lately that may lead to another postseason miss. The Angels are a big market big spending team. So it is not like they will be impacted over the long haul. If this were a team like the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Tampa Bay Rays, it would have been critical to their business model to recoup as much value as possible before losing that level of a talent. I can understand their position and their hope that a postseason berth may change their immediate future. There are many factors that are in their favor. It is reported that Otani wants to remain on the West Coast, eliminating big spending teams like the Yankees, Mets, and Red Sox. But they are still required to compete with the Dodgers, Los Angeles's true team. 
and the giants who have a big budget as well. What would I have done if I was the person making the decision? There is no way you can expect to find another player who can both pitch and hit at an elite level. But the writing on the wall is that he wants to leave for a perennial contender instead of continuing to play for a perennial pretender. The Angels have not made the playoffs despite having two of the game's biggest talents. So, I would have to be realistic and believe that his advisors are going to try to navigate him into the actual LA city limits. Therefore, I would try to recoup as much value and talent as possible to ensure that there is no further decline. Not out of financial necessity but competitive balance in a division where Houston generates talent and Texas is now competitive. That is just the right strategic direction. Now, the fans would definitely not like that decision. But front office leaders need to think long term and not allow themselves to be prisoners of the moment. Not easy when there are millions of eyes on the big decisions that you have to make. Talk about strategic thinking versus prisoner of the moment. We saw this happen with the New York Giants with how they handled their star running back. The market for running backs is deteriorating because the prototypical running back is no longer needed. Quarterbacks are reducing the need for a three down back. The short passing game covers running deficiencies for many teams. In any field, certain positions or functions become obsolete. When was the last time you saw a retail store full of cashiers and not just kiosks? The last time you went into a bank with every station manned? Just not a reality in the modern versions of those businesses. But running backs are still vital for many teams, just not as valuable as other positions. For the Giants, they had to balance investing in a player that was essential to their success last year, but in a position that is devolving. Especially after overpaying for a perennial underperforming quarterback who just happens to be working in a critically essential position of quarterback. The Giants made the best of a tough situation. Or at least kicked it down the road. The running back's concern over their future value illustrates a larger economic argument or question. Should an industry or policymakers concern themselves in protecting career fields that are becoming obsolete? Can an economy or society afford to lose that skill set or recreate it if needed? Does subsidizing create market inefficiencies that can harm other fields that are more essential to the success of the business and the customer experience? Not straightforward questions. If you are a worker in the declining field, then your answer is obviously yes to all. Otherwise you might object because there is no reason to pull money from others to compensate others who may not last as long. But there may be ideas that can offer solutions that are balanced and fair. The goal of any business or organization is to grow in value and expand assets. If you are going to lose or need to liquid an asset, you want to have replacement assets that may grow in value to buffer the loss. In sports, players may want to leave or seek a new chapter in their career. That is the life of an athlete. The team just needs to ensure that they are able to find replacements or assets that they can turn into a replacement to not drop in value. Otherwise you are going to have a hole in your lineup or roster and your fans are going to potentially see a former star excel elsewhere while their team navigates irrelevancy. A big thank you to all of you in the audience. Your viewership is appreciated and valued. Please follow the Christopher Peter Review on social media and continue to visit www.crcreview.com for new episodes. Thank you once again. Until next time.